So let's begin, uh, let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for this beautiful morning. Every morning is beautiful since your graces and mercies are new every, every day. We thank you, Lord, for this assembly and this opportunity that we can come together not only to fellowship but to grow in our, in our understanding of church history. Lord, please use this time to bless us and to encourage us. Amen. So we're looking at, uh, if, if you have a copy of Nick Needham, we're looking at chapter 4, uh, titled, uh, he titles it Gnosticism, Catholics, and Montanists. Uh, I'm titling our, le- our lesson today, Identity Crisis in the Church. And we're going to see that there was uh, pr- first the threat of the Gnostics. Now, have, has anyone not heard of the Gnostics before? They're, they're fairly, they're fairly well known. Uh, because of the Gnostics, uh, there was a, a development in the structure and in the teaching and, and uh, looking, establishing what the authority in the church was, and then that led into the Montanist movement. So this, these three points are going to outline our study today. First, looking at the threat of the Gnostics. They were the most serious spiritual threat to face the early church. And the reason why they were dangerous is because the Gnostics claimed that they were the true, true Christians, not, not those who belonged to an apostolic church and not those who adhered, followed, believed, and professed apostolic doctrine. Now, when I say an apostolic church, what, what do you think that I mean? Because the word apostolic nowadays can, can mean something quite, quite different. A, an apostolic church was a church that was either founded or ministered to by one of the 12 apostles. Um, or 13 if you count the Apostle Paul. Uh, apostolic doctrine is the doctrine that has been passed down from the apostles. So those holding to apostolic doctrine, those attending and belonging to apostolic churches, uh, in other words, the true church, was, were being challenged because these Gnostics are coming around saying that they are the true Christians and that the true Christians were not. The most basic belief for the Gnostics, which is why they are called Gnostics and their system called Gnosticism, is from the Greek word uh, gnosis, which means knowledge, and what they meant by it was a secret knowledge, a, a privileged knowledge that only only the enlightened could have, only the privileged could have. And of course, it was something that they alone possessed. And while there were roots for Gnosticism um, even in and before the New Testament times, uh, Colossians 1 says that, it, was, uh, it pleased the Father for the fullness of deity to dwell in, in Christ. Uh, 1 John 4, 2 says that if anyone denies uh, the Son coming in the flesh, then they do not know the truth. These are anti-Gnostic sentiments. And so there are roots for Gnosticism as early as the first century and before that. But by the time we get to the second century, uh, the Gnostic... Uh, strand has blossomed into a massive uh, structure and it has spread all across the empire and the Gnostics even have churches and assemblies of their own. 
what, like, like I said just a second ago, their, their number one belief, which is what mainly identified them, was the possession, was the unique and exclusive possession of this secret spiritual knowledge. And what is really ironic about this, and ultimately was self-defeating for, for this movement and development, is that nobody, no one um, uh, across all the sects of Gnostic churches and, and bodies, no one agreed on what the secret knowledge was. Every assembly, every Gnostic church, every Gnostic preacher or philosopher uh, said it was this or it's that. And, and it could be anything from uh, uttering some, what, what we would say in layman's terms, a magic password or, or uh, 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 reciting a spell uh, it could have been something as literal and as blunt as that, or it could have, it could uh, encompass an entire worldview, an entire philosophy, an entire way of life. And so there was no unity, there was no uniform constancy, consistency in what this gnosis was. Uh, all Gnostics were docetic, and that was that was a heresy that we looked. Uh, in about, I think, two or three lessons ago, uh, docetism was a worldview that came from Plato and Aristotle. Uh, their uh, beliefs included that the physical world is evil. Everything matter-wise, everything physical, your body, food, um, even, even things like sexual relations inhibited and squandered the spirit. And, and the world of matter, the world of the flesh, and, and occupation, and work, and money, and family, and food, and, and everything that we experience on a daily basis, all of that is really a cage for the soul. And so the physical world was evil and to be shunned. And if the physical world is evil, and if, if Christ is good, then those two cannot mix. And so the docetic view of Christ is that Christ was not fully a man. He merely appeared, and that, that's why they call it docetism. It comes from the Greek word to appear, to seem. He only seemed to be a man, but he was really just a spirit. He was an exalted spirit being, but he could not have had a physical body because physical things are evil. Good. Uh, some... Uh, Docetics and Gnostics believed that the um, they would have allowed Jesus to have been a man, and that the Christ Spirit uh, adopted him at his baptism, and then left prior to the crucifixion, so that the Christ uh, didn't experience death. Um, some believed that; others believed that he was fully just an apparition. Not, not a man, didn't have a body, didn't experience suffering. And for, for these people, salvation was concerned not with getting right and being reconciled with a holy God and being forgiven of their sins and, and, and having a healthy relationship with God. Salvation was concerned with escaping the confines of the body and of space and time and, and matter and the world. Salvation was, was escaping from all that uh, through the Gnosis, which 
And what's the main problem? What was the main refutation of the gnosis? I I say that it's a magical password that you have to recite. Your your pastor says that it's a way of it's a it's a philosophy that you need to embrace. You you need to fast from certain foods. You need to do this and do that. So who are you going to believe? What what's the basis for which one is true or not? That there uh, and and that is a very oversimplified. Um, example there were there were many 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 different um, sects which each had a different answer for what the gnosis what the secret to salvation was um, so the God of the Old Testament for for the Gnostics the God of the Old Testament was evil because the God of the Old Testament is is concerned with sacrifice and blood uh, and he's the God who created the, the, this fallen world. And so that couldn't have been the one true, good, and supreme God. That was a lesser God. Uh, and they used the term Demiurg, D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E. Uh, that was the name given to the evil God of the Old Testament who created this, this poor excuse of a creation. And he was vastly different from the God of the New Testament, which was the God of truth and light and purity and love and goodness. And as I said earlier, uh, man, salvation wasn't concerned with sin. Man's greatest problem isn't that he's a sinner before a holy God. Do I need to move back a little bit? So man's greatest problem isn't his sin, it's that he's ignorant. He just doesn't know who he really is. He's, he's uh, the, 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 the presence of his flesh and the presence of his body and the fact that he lives in this world where he has to work and put food in his mouth and deal with, with bodily needs, all, that's just getting in the way of him living in the spirit, man. That's, that's man's greatest problem. And that Jesus was uh, Jesus's purpose, that Christ's purpose was to show the way back to truth, not not to atone for sin, but to show the way. Uh, for the Gnostics, Jesus was not God, but he was what they call an aeon, and that's basically a uh, exalted, created being, something kind of like an angel. The 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 one true supreme God is so untouchable because he's purity, he's light, he's goodness. And, and us in our flesh, we can't approach him. And so God in his goodness provided kind of this middle man, this middle entity called an aeon, which is, which is Christ. And he's kind of showing us and conducting man how to get back to the, to the one true God through the gnosis, which nobody could agree what the gnosis was. And this view that, that Christ is, is the greatest uh, greatest created being is the foundation for uh, belief systems such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and others. I think Christian science as well, but don't quote me. Okay. Um, so as I said, there were many, many, many strands of Gnosticism. Um, the fact that no one, there was no unity really, that they, they did have some common beliefs, which I touched on, but they had many, many more differences in their beliefs, uh, primarily being uh, the most important, I think, being in the Gnosis. Um, and so for a while, they weren't as great of a threat to the church until a guy by the name of Marcion comes along. Uh, Marcion, 
Marcion was the, uh, he was a son of a bishop, so he had some exposure to Christianity. Uh, he was the son of a bishop from Asia Minor, which is uh, kind of like around Turkey area, Turkey and Galatia. Uh, he lived in Rome from 140 to 155. He died sometime around 160, and he had a lot of money. So even when he is excommunicated and branded a heretic from the Christian church, he can still take care of himself. Uh, what made him attractive to, to some Christians and, and, and made him influential was he wasn't quite so out there. Uh, he didn't quite focus so much on the aeons. He didn't um, touch upon some of the more weird theories about the beginning of the world. Um, and so he see, to Christians, he seemed, to um, gullible Christians, he seemed less radical and more plausible. He did claim, however, that the Old Testament and the New Testament opposed each other, which he expressed in a, in a piece that he wrote called The Antithesis. Uh, in this volume, he uh, clearly said that the, Old that the God of the Old Testament is that demiurge. He, said, he argued that Judaism is an evil system of works righteousness and law, which isn't too far from the truth, at least Second Temple Judaism anyway. And he said that the, New, that the New Testament gospel is a system of faith, freedom, and grace. Uh, he uh, definitely was influenced by the Gnostic teachings of his predecessors. He was extremely hostile to sexual relations and marriage. And it was said that he found the thought of, of reproduction repulsive. Uh, he compiled a modified canon of the New Testament. Uh, and so his scriptures, the Marcionic uh, canon, would, would have absolutely no Old Testament. And for the New Testament, anything that, that uh, reeks of Judaism is thrown right out. Uh, so um, Peter's books, Jude's books, uh, book singular, James, most of John, uh, and then... Um, Matthew, Mark, and, and the Gospel of John was thrown right out. He, he allowed for uh, um, edited portions of Luke, edited portions of Acts, and some of the Apostle Paul's epistles, since Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, not the Jews. So he's going to, Paul doesn't quite touch upon the Old Testament as much as some of the other writers. Marcion, Marcion's teachings would survive for. Five, about almost 500 years after his death. Now, the response to the Gnostics is seen, um, it, it, the response was shared uh, by many in the early church, but primarily the greatest example of the writings and the arguments that, that were made against these Gnostics were seen in a man named Irenaeus, I misspelled that. There is, it's I-R-A-N-A-E-U-S. He's the most important uh, church father that we have from the second century. And the reason for that is, is twofold. One is because of his theological heritage. You begin with Jesus, who's pretty important. Jesus had, had 12 guys who followed him, and, and these are 12 guys that he invested in heavily, and he gave him... Uh, he gave them his doctrine, and they would be the foundation of the church. One of them, John, 
had a, had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. So you could say that Irenaeus was the great-grand-disciple great of Jesus and the, and the grand-disciple of John the Apostle. So in this age where there is a clamoring, there's a cacophony, and there, there's just this um, abundance of voices all clamoring to be heard, uh, if you remember a couple of weeks back, we talked about um, the uh, importance of, ter- of, of, of looking to a trusted bishop who has been around for a while um, because his doctrine is likely going to be more solid. Well, if, when you have a guy who is only two steps removed from an apostle, um, or no, two steps removed from Jesus, one step removed from an apostle, then his doctrine is going to be very important, very reliable. So his theological heritage is is important, and he's also significant because of his writings against Gnosticism. Uh, One of them, probably the most important thing that he wrote, is a book, uh, the shorter titled is is Against Heresies. And you can get this on Amazon or on, on Kindle for like three bucks. It's called Against Heresies. And I love... One thing I miss about older books is how awesome their titles are. The, the, the full title is A Refutation and Overthrow of Knowledge Falsely So-Called. Isn't that wonderful? Now, in this writing, uh, it, it was a polemical writing, and it was an excellent source of information on what the Gnostics themselves believed. So he detailed their doctrines, and he, he uh, demonstrated how they were ridiculous. And he argued, uh, one, one of his main arguments is against the claim of secret knowledge because of the fact that nobody could even agree what that was. Now, furthermore, no, uh, not only could none of, none of uh, the, the, the Gnostic church as a whole agree on what it was, but when, you, they went, when he went to the apostolic churches where apostolic doctrine was being teached, guess what? None of them were teaching any of this Gnostic stuff. And in fact, the gospel that they had was flatly contradicting this idea of salvation through a gnosis. He demonstrated that the God of the Old Testament is one and the same with the God of the New Testament. And he defended the goodness of creation. And that salvation is not through uh, this this idea of gnosis, but salvation is through the life and death of Jesus Christ, who really, in fact, did take on flesh and blood. He is the second Adam, uh, whose perfect ob- obedience will take away and overwrite the the evil or the curse that the current creation is currently subjected to. You think of of Genesis three. You think of Romans eight. So there was a, there was an emphasis there was an emphasis on apostolic doctrine as well, and this was called the rule of faith. And what they what they basically did is they in, in going back and appealing to the doctrine that the apostles had, they uh, each church created what they called a rule of faith. And this was basically um, uh, they were called creeds at first, but they were basically doctrinal statements. We have a doctrinal statement here at this church. And it's a, it's a summary of what we believe. And we, we have that readily available, and from time to time we actually go through it so that 
so that you all and, and anybody who happens to visit isn't caught by surprise by, oh, I, I, can't, I didn't know that that church teaches this stuff. The, uh, you, um, those of you who have the, the Nick Needham book, he provides uh, uh, the transcript of the Apostles' Creed. You can look that up uh, fairly easily online. You look through that creed, it is just a statement. It's an affirmation of doctrine after doctrine after doctrine and after doctrine. And, and what takes maybe 15 seconds to read, you, you can basically go through a systematic theology in that creed. So that was the purpose of this rule of faith. It was to easily and concisely say, what does the orthodox or apostolic churches believe? And all of the apostolic churches had a, sim- a very, very similar rule of faith. There was also an emphasis on the churches founded by the apostles or who were ministered to by the apostles. And this is one of the reasons why fairly early on Rome became so important. Who, who ministered at Rome? wrote the book of Romans and who said he hoped to visit them soon in the book of Romans Paul um, and we also looked at if you remember at the very very end of first uh, Peter in chapter 5 um, there is a, a strong indication that Peter went to Rome as well and tradition says that Peter and Paul both spent their last five to six years or so ministering in Rome so the fact that that two of the apostolic heavyweights uh, spent the last uh, remainder of their lives ministering in Rome is one of the reasons, perhaps the reason why Rome became such an important church early on in church history. And then third, there was uh, an emphasis on preserving the New Testament scriptures because these were the only genuine uh, uh, articles or pieces of literature that contained the doctrine and the teaching that that the apostles themselves taught so there was an emphasis on on the doctrine of the church and the rule of faith there was an emphasis on churches that were founded or ministered to by apostles and then there was an emphasis and a desire to preserve and collect the writings of the apostles and as a result of this as a result of of the threat of this Gnostic body, which was vastly disunified throughout the world, and the fact that all of these churches, all of these true churches, uh, were teaching the same thing because they had the same, uh, they were teaching the same apostolic doctrine because they had the same apostolic foundation, the church gave itself a new name. And it's not playing the sound effect. Okay, do, 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 the Catholic Church, dun, dun, dun. Now, when, now when, when I'm saying that the, that the church is calling itself the Catholic Church in the third century, what are you thinking when you see Catholic Church? Man, you just really kind of took the wind out of my sails right there. Yeah, so this is not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church, the the, m- many of Rome's doctrines existed uh, in underdeveloped forms, uh, you know, and, and this is one of the benefits of, of studying church history is we can see little things 
little little saplings of doctrine sprouting up and developing over time. Many of Rome's doctrines existed uh, in underdeveloped forms prior to the Reformation, and they were developed and defined uh, and laid down in stone uh, as a response to the Protestant Reformation. So the, the Catholic Church is not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic comes from the Greek Catholikos, which means universal or throughout the world. And this set the, the true Orthodox Church apart from Gnosticism. It, it made the church distinct and set apart from all of these deviant groups which had no doctrinal unity, and they all taught conflicting doctrines. The, the one true church, wherever she was found, was built upon the same apostolic foundation, and they were teaching the same apostolic teachings throughout the world. And then as uh, uh, after, the, uh, really at the time the church was responding to and dealing with Gnosticism, you, you have even more confusion coming from this new development called the Montanists. And they were named after their leader, Montanus, not, not those, you know, these aren't heretics from Montana, but uh, these, the, it was named after a man named Montanus. He was a young convert who um, really came on the scene about 170. So this is about 10 years after Marcion uh, falls off the scene. He's, he's a young guy. Um, he came from another cult, which um, isn't really uh, not well known, but he, he was a cultic, cultist before this. And he comes on the scene, he begins prophesying, and he's joined by two young women who prophesy with him. And he says, um, and, and he spread to uh, Asia Minor, North Africa, Italy, and France. And he claimed that the Holy Spirit was speaking new things in a new way to the church through him and through his two prophetesses. And he's saying that, that the Holy Spirit doing these things was a fulfillment of John fourteen sixteen, which says, I will pray for the Father, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he will give you another helper that he may remain with you forever. And then in John sixteen twelve to 13, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot now bear them. However, then the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. Now, rather than that being interpreted as the Holy Spirit inspiring the apostles to write the canon of Scripture and serve as the foundation of the church, Montanus comes along with these two ladies and says that their prophecies, their prophecies, their utterances, their speaking in tongues, and their revelations were the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit coming and uh, being the helper that Jesus promised. And as I said, it, it spread throughout the known world at the time. And what was interesting is with these new revelations, with these new prophecies, none of them were doctrinal. None, none of them uh, uh, said that you had to believe in anything new about God or about man or about salvation. So that, that was good. Their, uh, their prophecies were completely emphatic and, and um, in abundance on the second coming of Christ. It, uh, Maximilia even said one of her prophecies was, after me, there will be no more prophecy but the end. And she said that sometime around 175. I don't know about you, but did the end come? 
but her, their, their teaching and their prophecies were just absolutely emphatic uh, uh, on the, the second coming. They taught that it was imminent, that it was going to happen within, as you can see in that one uh, prophecy, it was going to happen within their lifetime. They had a, the Montanists had a severe moral code bordering on, on legalism. Uh, they had an absolute ban on all second marriages. They obligated frequent fasting. They required their, their followers to only eat dried food. Uh, virgins had to be veiled. Uh, forgiveness for serious sins after baptism weren't allowed. And you cannot run from persecution. You must embrace it. Now, what really, what really marked their, uh, their system, their, their body, which we could associate with some things today, is that they had visions and dreams and speaking in tongues. Um, and if I can just uh, talk about a, uh, something real quick. When the scripture says speaking in tongues, you know what that word is? Tongues? Languages. And I wish... I wish that the, all the translation out there would just simply say they spoke in other languages instead of creating this whole new category, category called speaking in tongues because that is made up. Okay, back to this. So they, there were all of these weird esoteric predictions. And um, if I say words of comfort or words of knowledge or words of rebuke, have those of you who, who know people in the charismatic realm or, or those uh, maybe you used to be there, does that phraseology sound familiar words of knowledge uh, words of rebuke words of comfort these things abounded in the montanists and most of the prophecies didn't come true eusebius the a church historian about a hundred years after after this movement starts he recalls uh what people said about montanus in his lust for leadership he became obsessed and would suddenly fall into frenzy and convulsions. He began to be ecstatic and speak and talk strangely and prophesied contrary to that which was the custom from the beginning of the church. Those who heard him were convinced that he was possessed. Is that at any way uh, analogous to the apostles when they're speaking in tongues in Acts? They rebuked him and forbade him to speak, remembering the warning of the Lord Jesus to be watchful because false prophets would come. Any of this sound familiar? We would, we would call this movement, to, if it, uh, uh, as it is today, Pentecostal or charismatic. And there are, as we've seen, some similarities, but there are some differences, though. I, I d- severely doubt that today's charismatics would, uh, would adhere to the strict moral law um, uh, I forgot to say that Montanists were also celibate, um, but charismatics today would, wouldn't want to uh, be subject to the strict eating code. I don't think anyone would, would willingly embrace um, martyrdom and so on. And there was no evidence that Montanus ever taught that there was a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a very common uh, doctrine taught within the charismatic circles. You know, as if that there's this second tier of spiritualism or Christianity within the faith. And so because of, because of stuff like that, the, the Catholic Church universally re, uh, 
reacted by rejecting the Montanists. And it's no wonder. I mean, the things that they would do would, would, would just seem suspicious. It would raise... It would raise concern when you would see things like this. How come there's no sound? Okay, so I'm going to, let me, so this guy is getting the anointing. And he's, he's, he's prophesying over this guy. He's giving him the anointing. And he's falling, he's about to fall down. And the preacher is saying that you're anointed, you're anointed, you're anointed. And then you hear a telephone ring. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm getting the anointing. That's right, I'm getting the anointing. And the pastor's like, what? I'm getting the anointing. I'm getting the anointing. I'll call you later. I'll call you later. No, wait, hold on. I'll call you later. And then he he hangs up the phone. And he he says, okay, continue, pastor. And the pastor's like, are you kidding me? And the guy's, the guy's trying to get him to go on with the anointing. Stuff like that happens. And you must ask yourself, why should I believe that these things... Why should I believe that these things are really the Holy Spirit? Why should I believe that that is God supernaturally acting in someone's life? The things that, that the Montanists did, uh, they seemed... Like, to, to the Catholic Church, they seemed like spiritual drunkards. They seemed like ecstatic zealots because of their religious intensity. And so the church was rightly highly suspicious of their behavior. And, and as that video showed, there were problematic claims of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Things would, like that would happen, and it would be right to ask, why should we believe that that is the Holy Spirit? As I said earlier, many of their prophecies did not come true, such as Maximilia saying, after me comes the end, there will be no more. The world is still here. And they called Christians, when the the Catholic Church, when the Orthodox Christians rejected their new prophecy, their their movement, they called the Christians unspiritual. And so they, they created division and they created controversy really at the time where the where the catholic church is trying to build unity and be united on doctrine because they're they're still dealing with the gnostics and so that really didn't help the montanists at all it just gave the catholic church more ammo to use against them and also uh some some montanists did fall into heresy which further uh sealed the case for them so that was Gnosticism. That was the reaction to the Gnostics as we see the church uh, uh, getting its moorings secured on apostolic doctrine, on the apostolic writings of the scriptures, uh, building their rule of faith or the creeds. And then we see, saw also how they reacted to the Montanist movement. 